Hi there. Welcome to another episode of What Should I Do With My Life? Featured in this episode is one of my housemates, Frank Lee. Frank is currently an analyst at Silver Lake, a private equity firm in Menlo Park, California. He recently graduated from the Wharton School of the University of Pennsylvania. In this episode, we talk a lot about his job in the private equity industry, from how the industry works to his tips on breaking into the industry, among many other things. I hope you enjoy it. So welcome to the podcast, Frank. Hey, Brian. Thanks for having me. Do you want to start off maybe with giving us a quick um, introduction about yourself, what you do, um, and anything else you might want to tell um, the audience? Yeah, for sure. So I'm currently a first-year analyst at a private equity firm called Silver Lake, which is located in the Bay Area. Um, But originally, I'm from Canada, which I would argue is probably the better country to be in right now. Um, I would agree. (laughs) But aside from that, I I went to school and high school there. And um, for college, you know, I wanted to do finance, business. And I thought, you know, schools in the States was better for that. So I decided to go to UPenn, um, the Wharton School. And it was great. It was a great experience. And now I'm in the Bay Area. So doing finance, kind of like many of the graduates from from Penn. Very cool. Um, So... A big focus of this podcast is actually um, sort of giving people information about industries they otherwise would not have access to. And in my mind, private equity is one of those fields. Um, So for example, I knew nothing about what private equity was um, until I got to college. And even then, I knew very, very little about it. Um, So do you want to maybe start off by telling us uh, what is private equity um, and like what is your job? Yeah, sure. So... I think private equity, the most general way of describing that is investing private money into um, different investments. So if you think about kind of the investing space in general, right, you're looking at kind of public investing and private investing. So if you think about public investing, think about Apple right now, right? You could go out, open up an account and buy 10 shares of Apple, right? It's easy to do. That in many ways is essentially a form of retail investing where individuals go out and make investments, Um, then you can do it on a much bigger scale, right? So you can have an institution go buy a million shares of Apple. And we ourselves, you know, being being college, you know, just out of college, we probably can't do that. So how that works for those institutions is they pull together a lot of money and that enables them to make these bigger investment decisions. So that's on the public side. Now, think about making investment in... Pearson Airport. Sorry, so this is the airport in Toronto, by the way. Mm-hmm. Um, or think about an investment in any airport, right? It's not something we could just do any day of the week, right? They don't just don't offer that sort of investment opportunity. But in many cases, they still need capital in order to run and run in order to run the business. So how they do it typically is they'll ask, look for capital, and they'll reach out to you know many of these investment firms. And this is where kind of private equity comes in. They're able to provide financing or some sort of equity investment. And this allows the, the company to run much better because perhaps they want to expand internationally or they want to buy another company and they just need the money. So private equity allows them to do those sort of transactions with some sort of money. And that's how kind of private equity comes into play in this whole investing space. 
Cool. Um, and I think as I understand, it's a relatively new sort of investing. Um, is that correct? Or, you know, what is, what's the history behind it? Yeah, private equity, it's been around, you know, for a while. I think at, at a point when people realized that you could really um, lever up a company, which is basically put on a lot of debt and, you know, run the business and then pay off the debt. And then you, you're, you walk away with a huge return. Once people realize that, um, I think that's when the industry really got started. So I think the industry has been around, you know, for some time. If you, th I don't know if you've heard of names like um, Henry Kravis, right? The, this is he's like one of the uh, the founders, so to speak, of the private equity space. And a lot of the the big private equity firms nowadays, like KKR, Blackstone, Apollo. Well, Apollo maybe a bit later, but. Definitely kick it out. They're like the founding so-called private equity firms. And mm -hmm. when people got started in the business, right, they didn't realize that, they didn't label it as private equity. It was just another form of investing. But I think slowly as time progressed, people realized that, yeah, this is in and of itself, you know, kind of a different sphere. Mm -hmm. um, but of course, private equity has, covers many different types of um, investing. And it's not really just the simple buy a company with a lot of debt, pay off the debt, walk away with, with money sort of deals now. Now you're looking at companies buying another company and the private equity firm steps in to provide um, acquisition financing. Mm -hmm. um, there's a lot of like turnaround deals that you could do in private. Um, so there's a lot that can be done nowadays that no longer involve the pure basic private equity that people knew of it, say like 20 years ago. Cool. Um, do you have maybe an example of one of the big private equity deals that you know the average American or Canadian might know about? Yeah. So let's just uh, go with the company that Silverlake has invested in, for the sake of promoting my my firm. <laughs> um, so one of the the big deals we've done recent well not recently it's been many years now, uh, but I think in twenty eleven was when we bought in. This was GoDaddy. Right, GoDaddy uh, was a firm that was historically private. It was run uh, by a guy named Bob Parsons. He, he's the CEO and he still now is a big shareholder. He um, decided to, so Silver Lake came in with KKR and I believe another party. And so these three parties, we basically bought the company um, from from the existing shareholders and it was still private so now it became private at that time um, and through a period of years we worked on operational improvements to you know make the company better and quite recently we, we took the company public so that's usually a way of um, essentially exiting out of the investment but for us it was a bit different because you know we think the company still has long-term potential so we're still uh, shareholders of this of this business but if you think about kind of this company itself GoDaddy is uh, I, I would assume a very recognizable name out there especially in the domain purchasing space and if you kind of dig into the ownership you'll notice that you know private equity firms own this um, along with of course the regular institutions that you normally see day to day but um, both KKR and Silver Lake right now we have large ownership stakes in this business. So how did, 
I don't know if this is like public information or not, but how did they decide that GoDaddy was a good investment? So from our side, you know, it's looking at like, like any other deal that we do, right? You have to do due diligence and you have to analyze the business in order to figure out whether or not it's worth doing. Um, and I think there were many aspects to this business that was very attractive, right? One is kind of the fact that it's a very recognizable brand and the fact that five years ago, they didn't really have good ways of monetizing this business. So whenever you kind of see opportunities to improve the business, and many of these could be easy improvements, right? That's a good, a sure tell sign that it's, you know, it's something worth pursuing. Mm -hmm. But you also have to look at many other important metrics, right? You have to see the check evaluation, make sure it's not overpriced, because any investment at a bad price is probably not a good investment. I mean, it, it depends, but if it's, tr if it's selling higher than the expected price, then it's probably not something you want to buy. Mm -hmm. So as for GoDaddy, we were pretty fortunate. It's one of our better investments or one of our best inf investments. And uh, it's done really well through both operational improvements and the fact that we have an amazing, amazing management team. So when basically after Silverlake and KKR got involved, um, many of the, so we have a lot of different, uh, sorry, so a lot of the management has, has changed and we brought in many new people and that's like definitely a, a huge plus to the business. Cool. Um, it sounds a lot like in a way venture capital investing. Um, so in, we're in San Francisco right now. So there's a lot of talk about, you know, people investing in like Snapchat or Uber, do you think it's a similar sort of industry or what are the, what are the differences? Yeah, I think it's, it's different in the fact that private equity usually deals with much larger businesses, right? So if you think about these VC firms, they like to make investments in smaller companies, you know, startups, maybe later stage startups, but their check size, usually, it's not that big, especially in the early stages. Whereas mm -hmm. in private equity, you could be easily cutting out like a $500 million check, just purely equity, right? In many cases, it goes up to a billion and sometimes you need multiple PE firms to do it all at once because one firm can't cut an equity check that's big enough to support the investment. So I think size is a huge issue. Um, second is kind of, if you look at the type of businesses that private equity firms like to invest in, the financial profile is very different from the typical VC firm. So if you think about um, firms that P firms like to do, they're typical retail stores, retail companies or tech companies that have stable cash flows that are able to service debt. That's usually a very important sign, right? They're usually in established industries with um, some sort of barrier to entry, strong competitive edge, competitive advantage in the space. Whereas in VC, from my understanding, a lot of it, it comes down to, do you believe in the founders, right? Do you believe in the, the idea that they're pursuing and how, do they have the experience? So it's a lot, a lot of it is based on the people. You don't have a good grasp of whether it's going to make money 
many times they're just focusing out on growth, right, from in the initial phases, um, which is fine, but P from, if it's purely growth with no monetization, that's a much harder sell to a private equity firm. That's really interesting. Um, how would you compare it to, for example, like a firm like Goldman Sachs or like the big banks that we know about? Like technically they're all finance companies, right? But are there like differences or what kind of differences are the big ones? Yeah, so finance, there's many different institutions that all are in this so-called finance space. But if you look at a firm like Goldman Sachs, right, a lot of what they do is advisory work. And that's very different from investing because advisory work, the best way I like to think about it is um, a real estate agent that serves a client. So they'll help you find houses to buy, help you sell your house, and they'll pocket essentially a transaction fee or a commission. But the buyer and seller, that's a different party, right? Because they actually have the money to put down in order to buy the house. So two very different roles. And obviously the incentives are, are different, right? Because if you think about your advisor, someone who pockets commission when the house is bought or sold, you obviously want that person to buy the house, right? Because that's how you make your money. But for the investor, you can't just put your money down on anything. You have to make sure and look and see that this is a worthwhile investment that will generate returns in the long run. So th there is a natural kind of conflict of interest in this sphere. But obviously, connections are important because you have to work well with the advisors to get something done. And they also rely on you. So there's kind of a a symbiotic relationship in this space. Interesting. Um, so how about your day-to-day? -day? Um, how, or when do you get into work? When do you leave work? And what do you do in, in between? Yeah, so I think um, the workday is predictable yet also very unpredictable. Um, it really depends on the deals you're on. So by deals, I mean we'll look at various investments and sometimes these are investments that we're very heavily considering. Some are more in the early stages. Um, other times it's portfolio company work, so companies that we already own, uh, but also require some deal of work here and there. Depending on what it is, right? If you look at kind of an early stage deal where it's purely kind of the first initial go at the business, a lot of the time is putting together preliminary financials, preparing for the management meeting, you know, drafting questions, understanding the business in general and how the industry operates. And that could involve making expert calls. And I think that's one of the coolest parts of the job is uh, you essentially, in order to better understand the business and the industry, you can reach out through, you know, services and get, get in touch with, you know, ex-CEOs of a competitor, someone who's very high up in another competing firm and have their take on the industry. So I think that's really cool. In the later stages of an investment, you're really dealing with um, the transaction process itself, right? You have to do analysis, get advisors to do analysis on the tax to make sure there's no tax leakage. Um, there's also due diligence on the accounting to make sure the quality of earnings is there. Um, so there's a lot of due diligence in the later stages to make sure everything is fine. Also legal, right? There's no legal liability that's going to be an overhang. So depending on where you are in the deal, 
tasks are different. But I can safely say, you know, a lot of the work is in front of a computer, and there's a lot of work that's done in meetings over the phone. There's a good amount of communication across parties. So, you know, you get a mix of everything in this job. Well, cool. um, how about the hours? I've heard that investment banking, for example, is really brutal. Um, how does private equity compare? Yeah, it's supposedly better, and it is. It is better, um, mainly because many times, if you think about banking um, as a, as an advisor, right, you're kind of in charge of giving information wherever the client wants it. And the clients are usually private equity firms, other investors. And if they say they need some sort of analysis tomorrow, well, as the advisor, you got to give it to them. And what does that mean? That usually means someone's going to be working quite late to get it done. Kind of on the client side, being a private in the private equity space, you have a lot more say in things you want to do, things you don't want to do. So you have more control over your timeline. But of course, there's sometimes when it's still very busy because Sometimes a bank will run an auction process, and if the auction process says the bid bid deadline is November fifteenth, then your your bid has to be in by then. Otherwise, you miss out on the deal. So there might be a time crunch to get all your analysis done in time. So it really depends. Um, sometimes it's busy. Sometimes it's not. And I think what I realized from these first couple of months at work is that August. Is surprisingly a very quiet period um, in the private equity space. Seems like everyone is on vacation or, you know, having some sort of time off. So that's a relatively quiet period of, of the year. Hmm. Fascinating. Um, so I think now I'd like to hear, or we could go into maybe how you got into private equity. Um, so you went to Wharton and you studied. Um, finance there and I've heard a lot about you know from friends that go to Wharton about the different things that they're considering usually it's something along the lines of investment banking or management consulting or something like that um, did you ever think about those options and how did you end up choosing private equity yeah um, so it, finance being you know at a pre-professional school um, finance was definitely a path that a lot of people talk about and I feel like for myself you know there's a lot it's something that really interested me and in, in high school I didn't really know that there was this finance path I just knew that there was this broad business cloud so to speak and then kind of in college you realize oh there's many different parts of business and I think one of the parts I enjoyed the most is investing investing is really interesting because you have to dig in on a company and then make a decision essentially um, so that was a huge part of it and a lot of my friends they're in banking which is the advisory side as I talked about earlier but I you know I think it's a great opportunity there but at the same time you're doing a lot of work sometimes that may not be very meaningful um, and certainly sometimes you, you don't get to make a call, so to speak. Whereas I, I wanted to go straight into private equity because not only do you have to do things in a very structured process, um, but you have this investing aspect where the firm's really making a decision and you actually have to 
think about the investment and figure out for yourself if it's worth doing or not. And I think that's the part that really drove me towards private equity or in um, the finance lingo terms, the buy side. Okay. Hmm. Interesting. Um, I also heard that the, it is harder to get into private equity as an undergraduate. Um, is that true? And maybe why, could you explain why that is, if it is true? It is true to some degree, right? If you think about the number of banks out there and the number of private equity firms, private equity firms, they like to hire bankers because they kind of have this expectation that once you join the firm, you can get off the ground running. And many times people don't necessarily have the skills and it takes two years of banking to hone a similar set of skills. Um, and that's why they like to hire kind of bankers two years out of college. But on the other hand, you know, many of these private equity firms do run analyst programs and Silver Lake being one of them. And I think, you know, there's only so many private equity firms and many of these programs are very small, right? Silver Lake is quite small. Only a couple um, students across the, the various offices. So just, it's a numbers game, right? There's not that many spots available um, and it's harder in that respect. But I'd say, you know, for people who want to get into private equity, going the banking route is definitely increases your odds. If you go to like a good group in an investment bank, two years out, if you want to recruit, there's usually a lot of private equity firms that will hire. So what do they look for when they're, they're looking at, you know, Wharton undergraduate business students? Is there anything you did specifically to sort of stand out from, from the crowd or like, how did you think about that process? Yeah, the, the good thing about uh, many of these schools is that they have a more formal process for recruiting, especially for the banks, right? They, they'll come on campus, do some sort of info session, you, you'll be able to meet with people and network with them and then eventually they'll conduct interviews. And I think that was the case for me, you know, Cyril came on campus and it really helped in that respect. But I think what, what exactly they're looking for, a couple of things. One is there's the technical skills, understanding financial concepts, the accounting behind these concepts. And that's assumed that you know it already. Um, and, you know, coming out of Wharton, I think the school trains you very well, uh, but there's also a lot of expectation, you know, to do some of this yourself on, on your own time or in a club, for instance. And a lot of my good friends who are in various banking, you know, private equity roles, a lot of them have found investing to be interesting outside of purely class because you won't be able to get everything out of the classes, uh, just purely out of the classes. So one is kind of the, the financial know-how, so to speak. The second aspect is on just a general investing sense, right? If someone asked you about, say, Walmart, could you give, based on limited knowledge and understanding, a quick, you know, thesis, like three points on why I think Walmart is a good business? Mm -hmm. And you'd be surprised. I think a lot of people don't think about it that way, right? I think a lot of people are very execution-driven so, oh, we need you to model out Walmart. They could easily do that, but they don't think about, you know, what does the modeling mean? Is it worth investing in, in Walmart? So there's a lot of that. So I think investing, the investing sense is important. 
And I think the third point I would emphasize would be kind of professionalism. Being kind of in banking and private equity really forces you to be professional because many times, I'll say from personal experience, I, um, a lot of these people I deal with at, let's say, the, the, the accounting diligence firms or the tax diligence firms, they're like pretty high up. And sometimes I think they might find it crazy that you have like a 22-year-old leading the discussion or whatever, right? Um, but as, as long as you're professional, it, it's fun. And you just have to kind of ask the right questions, be thoughtful. And I think those are some important traits for the job. Hmm. That's really interesting. Um, I guess for me, working in Silicon Valley in the tech industry, um, as an engineer, it sounds, it's like no one really throws around that term professional, professionalism. Um, so I guess it's, it's interesting to, to think about what the, what different industries are like. Well, yeah, if you just um, look at the attire, um, a lot of the finance people are in suits. Yeah, what do, you, what do you wear to work every day? Well, I think Silver Lake's a lot better. We, we just do um, a suit without the jacket or the tie. So in okay. a way, many ways, business casual, which is better than wearing a suit all day. Very cool. Um, so how about um, like the sort of compensation? Um, a lot of people, when I, when I think about finance at least, I think about you know making a lot of money and this is sort of the main motivator. My mom always tells me, you know, you should consider Wall Street and you can <laughs> make a lot of money there. Um, uh, does, does that sort of fit the, does that stereotype fit um, in private equity? Yeah, I, I mean, a lot of people I'm sure do it for, for the money, but I think the best investors out there, they do it because they generally enjoy investing. Like they, they're fine if they, I'm sure if they took a pay cut and they would still do the job just because for many people it's so interesting to be digging into like a, one tech company today and then another tech company tomorrow, right? So that's, I think, huge value for a lot of people. In terms of compensation, yeah, I'm not going to share my compensation, <laughs> but I'll be, I'll be honest, like as, as an analyst, it's, it's good, but it's, I think it's pretty comparable to, to tech out there. It's not outrageous. And I don't think salary becomes outrageous until you kind of make it into the, the upper echelons of, of finance. And generally how, how the whole finance structure works, especially in hedge funds and private equity, is they run a model where um, they get a certain amount of money from just the pool of assets that they're managing. But more importantly, they get so-called a cut of profits for every dollar that they make extra for the investor. And usually that split is 2% on managing the assets and 20% on um, profits that you make. And the economics for how a fund is owned and how it trickles down is that the founders typically have and like an unusually large percentage of the pie and the pie gets a, the, the piece that's left for the people who are maybe not the founders is much lower. So the moral of the story is if, you if the firm is yours <laughs> and you're making money, then you'll probably see a large paycheck. Huh. Are those numbers public at all? Like, is, can you give a rough estimate of how much like, the founder of any given private equity firm might make? So many of the private equity firms now are, are um, 
are public. Granted that a firm like Blackstone, for instance, right, they're not just doing private equity, they also do real estate, other fields. Um, I think, so Blackstone is public. I know Schwartzman is the, the CEO, founder. He's kind of the, the lone dog in that space. So, so he founded the firm and he's known as like the founder mm-hmm. of, of Blackstone. And I think from when, if I remember correctly, he was pocketing maybe half a billion one year. It's a lot of money. Yeah, um, enough for many lifetimes. Yeah, he was pocketing a lot of money. I think half a billion is, is what he was getting. So for a successful private equity person, would, they, would you expect them to make on the same order of magnitude or like significantly less? Less. Less? Less. Okay. Schwarzman, he, he runs one of the most well-known firms out there, right? And he's making a lot of money. But typically, there's a lot of private equity firms that aren't as well-known. Many of them focus on companies that are mid-market, so small companies that we won't hear about day-to-day. And they'll still take home a good paycheck. But when you're investing in smaller companies and if you kind of take on the private equity model where you're only doing so many deals every year, there's only so many profit dollars you can make off of a $100 million company versus like a $10 billion company, right? It's just math. Like 10% of <laughs> yeah. a 10 billion versus 10% of 100 million is vastly different. Very true. Uh, so to kind of go towards the sort of last segment of this podcast, uh, I'm curious to hear how your experience at Penn was. Um, did you like it? And like, Sort of, is there anything you would have done differently um, if you could try again? Yeah, it was great. Uh, Penn was an amazing experience, and I really enjoyed the fact that there were so many diverse people out there. Like, there's a lot of international kids, a lot of Canadians, and it's good. Kind of op- it opens your mind in many ways because you see people from different backgrounds, people's different interests. And there's obviously a large group of people at Penn who are interested in finance, who are passionate about finance, who are truly passionate. That's really motivating because you know for sure that you know, those are people you look up to because if you're interested in finance, that's what you should be doing. You should be really passionate about it. And I think Penn offers a lot of that. Um, and obviously, just the connections you make there and the friends you make like any other school, it's, it's not only valuable, but it also, I think, build, builds you as a person. So if you were to give some advice to um, a freshman in college, um, what would you tell them? Yeah, I'll try my best here. I think being a freshman in college, definitely explore opportunities. You know, I, I like to think, you know, there's more than just finance out there. And being in California, I, I think that's certainly true especially in, in SF. But if you want to break into finance, I think there's a few things, right? One is, depending on the school, some of them may or may not have finance programs. So if they don't, then try to spend some time on your own understanding basic financial concepts, how to build a model, accounting, those are pretty important. Once you have that under your belt, then you can start looking for some internships Typically, sophomore year is hard, sophomore summer, 
But junior summer is the crucial year where you really have to network your way to, to these banks if the options are kind of limited on campus. But um, what's important is to show them that you're like an, an interesting person to be, to be around for a large chunk of the day, especially in banking because you're spending so many hours in the office with the same people. If you guys don't like each other, that, that's a problem, right? So being someone you can get along with and also having the financial knowledge, that's really going to help uh, pave the way for success in the long run, I hope. Cool. Um, and do you have any sort of resources or suggestions, maybe websites or books, um, people to follow on Twitter or blogs um, for anyone that's interested in learning more about you know, finance or just you know, life in general? Life in general. Okay, I'm, I'm going to pass on the life in general because I feel like I'm too <laughs> a pretty broad question. <laughs> but in terms of finance, I, I think there's this one blog that someone recommended to me back when I was a freshman, sophomore. They stopped kind of posting new things, but the existing content's really good. It's called The Fallible Investor. Um, and it's a very good blog on various investing concepts. And he himself has essentially synthesize a lot of information from the famous landmark investing books. Um, so definitely worth checking out. In terms of prepping for interviews, I think once you get to junior year, you'll probably hear this a lot, but there's a mergers and inquisitions guide. It's like 400 questions on things that interviewers like to ask. And it's a pretty good book. It's a good start. But I think many, it, being on the other side now, I realize that I have to come up with questions that aren't in the book because <laughs> otherwise interviews are no fun. So make sure you understand the concept, not just the question itself. So those are the big resources. I think obviously we do some reading on investing and on your own, like look into a stock, be, be comfortable doing a stock pitch. And the more reps you do, the better you'll get. You'll get. And I think this... This whole industry, I think, in many ways, is kind of like an apprenticeship business, right? You, you learn from people who've been around longer than you, who know more of the in and outs of the business, of the industry, and can guide you. And that's how I kind of see the, this whole industry. And I think you just want to make the connections, you know, be some friends with some upperclassmen who have been in the industry, know what's going on. And yeah, then I think it'll work out. Cool. And with that, um, I think we'll end there. So thank you for joining me. Great. Yeah. Thanks, Brian.